Sin rarely suddenly happens. There is a trail leading to the big mistake, and God's instruction manual gives us the warning signals. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurzen, begins today by sharing some thoughts as he introduces our lesson titled, One Man and One Woman. Sin starts out as little thoughts of hate, of violence, of cruelty, of, of, of polarization that takes place where understanding goes out the window and, and warfare becomes a dominating view of life. You see, that's the way anger works. That's why Jesus said, if you are angry with your brother, you've already murdered him. It's why in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we need to deal ruthlessly with our violence. I want to talk to you today about one of the qualities of spiritual leadership that's an absolute necessity. I also want to talk to you about a bomb that is being built in your own life and in my life. It's a bomb that can explode your home life to smithereens. Because a lot of you need to realize that that the evil one, Satan, wants to destroy your individual home. And certainly our church family doesn't have to look very far to realize that the evil one is out to destroy home life. And there can be innocent victims when this bomb goes off that are left wounded and bleeding. And it destroys things. In fact, if I were to ask you, how many of you husbands and wives, how many of you husbands have said, man, this week I'm out of here. I need to split. I can't take it anymore. If I were to say to how many of you wives this week, man, I'm not sure it's worth it. I think I'm out of here. You know, if you've been married for five minutes, you know, you have thought like that. And we also know that there's this incredible attack that's trying to fuel this anger, produce immorality, and cause things to go to be exploded. And the, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 realizes the power of that explosive potential to wipe out your family. He understands the struggle that it is to live a moral life in an immoral society. And that's why as we open our Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, as the Apostle Paul talks to us about leadership, and we've been talking about several personal characteristics that need to be part of the character of a man and woman that's going to be a leader in a church. And Paul began, he said this in verse 2. He says, now the overseer. Some of you have now the bishop. And I want you to see, once again, I want to remind you of something. It shows you how just little translations can change our entire picture of things. When I say now the bishop, it's easy for you to say, that's right, Dave. What you're going to talk to us about is about ecclesiastical authorities. It's people that live, that wear long flowing robes and put their collars on backwards and sprinkle holy water and go through chants. That's what it's talking about, the bishop. Well, I want you to know that in the first century when the Apostle Paul wrote those words, there were no high priests in flowing robes in the Christian circles because Christianity was just a fledgling sect that was considered to be part of Judaism. There was just people like you that had found out that Jesus was alive. There was none of this Christendom. There was none of this separation between the clergy and the lady. There was just believers in Christ. And so when I read these words now, the overseer, don't you read now the ecclesiastical bishop that's going to be a special holy man for me is the one that needs to listen to what Paul is saying. Because Paul's going to come to you and say, no, this is for you. Every one of you need to have your goal to become a spiritually mature person, both man and woman. 
And your goal needs to be to be able to become an example for the younger believers in God's family. Every believer needs to be walking down this pathway of spiritual maturity. And some of you need to get to a place where you are recognized by the believers around you as being someone that has struggled with this walk of grace long enough and the Spirit of God has taught you enough that you have grown to a place of spiritual maturity where others that are younger can look to you as a, as a legitimate example and they can know that you can help them along the way. And that's what a spiritual leader is. And that's why every one of you, single, married, small, young, old, need to look carefully at these qualities. And I want you to notice the Apostle Paul begins with a subject we talked about many, many weeks ago that the spiritual leader needs to be above reproach. That's where he begins. He needs to have no water gates undercover. Now what that means is that there's integrity in the spiritual leader's life. It doesn't mean that he's never done anything wrong. It doesn't mean that he never failed, he never made a mistake. In fact, it uses a, a present infinitive here. And it means that right now as we look upon this individual, we know that we're not going to find some deep, dark secret out about this individual because he's been open with us or she has been open with us. We know what's going on in their life. And we have seen the power of Christ to, to change them. It's very important to understand that. But then he says after he talks about they must be above reproach and he ends the list by saying they need to have a good reputation with unbelievers, he gets right down to one of the basic, basic things that he holds is so important. He says, now, the spiritual leader in the NIV translates it, the hus must be the husband of but one wife. Now, I want you to turn over to chapter 5, because when the Apostle Paul talks to widows in the church, he uses this expre same expression in chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. And there we read this. Now, the widow may be put on the list of widows. She must not be put on the list unless she's over 60. Now, what this list was in the early church... The older widows that needed to be cared for because they, they might have physical needs, they might have housing needs, they might have financial needs. The, the church in the first century would have a list of ladies, widows in the church that needed to be cared for. And the Apostle Paul said that they should not be put on this list unless they're older widows. And then he says this, unless they have been faithful to her husband. Now the NIV translates the phrase faithful to her husband, it is the identical phrase that's used back in 1 Timothy 3 for the, the men that are under consideration for spiritual leadership. Now let me talk to you, let me just give the phrase to you literally. Basically what the word is in 1 Timothy 3, it's three words, and it goes like this. In 1 Timothy 3 it says a spiritual leader must be a one-woman man. It must be, he must be a one-woman kind of a man. In 1 Timothy 5, the same phrase is used, only this time of the opposite sex. And there it is, the widow that needs to be taken care of needs to be a woman who, for, who in her life has been a one-man kind of a woman. Now, the church has debated down through the centuries about what that means. And what I'm going to do is to try to bring you up on that debate. In other words, what does this little phrase, it's just a simple phrase, a one-woman man, a one-man woman, what does it mean? Well, one of, the, one, of the, one of the viewpoints that developed very early in the second century is that it meant someone who was married to the church. 
In other words, what it meant, a one-man kind of a woman and a one-woman kind of a man was an individual that was married to Mother Church. The New Testament speaks about the church being the bride of Christ. The Old Testament speaks about Israel being the, mother, uh, the, the wife of Yahweh. And so the, the view developed that what we needed to do was develop a very special group of individuals in the community of faith who would exclusively devote themselves to the church. And that's where celibacy developed. Some, many of you are familiar with the Roman Catholic tradition. And that's how the thinking developed in the Roman Catholic tradition that you needed to have priests who were celibate. In other words, they were fully devoted just to Mother Church. And you had nuns who would be especially devoted to Mother Church. Now that is a very powerful movement within Christendom. What we need to ask ourselves is, is that the way the Apostle Paul thought in the first century? And as you're in these kind of debates, in other words, as we look at this phrase, I, if I were a Roman Catholic priest today, I could develop a very strong case showing you from the New Testament that the church is viewed as the bride of Christ, and therefore you could have a group of individuals that were exclusively devoted to Mother Church, and therefore they should not marry. But I would fail to read further into 1 Timothy and read this. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. The question we need to ask ourselves is, would the Apostle Paul in the first century encourage a priesthood of celibacy? We're not even going to deal with the issue is, would the Apostle Paul view in first century thinking and New Testament thinking that there was an exclusive separate group in the body of Christ called the priests and called nuns? In other words, would he develop an idea of clergy? You say, I would tend to say the Apostle Paul would say, no, the Apostle Paul says over and over again, you are all brothers and sisters in Christ. You are all priests and priestesses. You are all ordained by the Lord if he has come into your life. But I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. He writes like this. The Spirit clearly says, not with ambiguity, not hard to understand, that in the latter days, some will abandon the faith. They will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, I would not ever speak like this. I want you to see the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not mince words. In other words, he comes right out and lays it on the line. He says that we're in an incredible spiritual warfare. One of the warfares going to take place in your life is going to be a movement to want to have a special holy class. To want to have a special group of people that you can look to and say, they're the holy men, they're the holy women. And you will try to receive comfort from their exclusive, uh, exclusive relationship to God. That's the teaching of the evil one. Because you're trusting in a structure. You're, stru you're beginning to trust in individuals. And Paul says that, that very quickly, he calls it the latter days, the, in Christendom, they're going to develop this idea that you can have a special group of people and they will teach a certain doctrine. They will teach, such, it says this in verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What do they do? They forbid people to marry. One of the things that false religion will do is to try to convince you that somehow human sexuality is evil. That somehow it is tainted. That somehow that if you're involved sexually that you're not as pure as someone who's just a virgin. And that's where you have the teaching that developed in the New Testament that Mary never had relationships with Joseph because she is the perpetual virgin. That is an idea that develops from this idea that somehow sex is evil in itself. 
From that thinking also comes that those that are going to be the priests and priests and nuns, they need to be especially pure and therefore free from sexual immorality. I want you to see the Apostle Paul takes a very strong stand against a religious system that teaches that kind of what we call asceticism. The Apostle Paul said they're going to develop a whole teaching that will forbid believers from marrying. He says also this, they will order them to abstain from certain kinds of food. I want you to see those two things, an anti-sex, anti-food, a rigidity in food. And I want you to see that almost all false religion will eventually lock down and have very rigid rules about food and about sexuality. And it always perverts the goodness of God's creation. Notice what Paul says in the next verse. He says this. It says, They forbid people to marry and to order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. I'm going to read that again and I want you to say amen. For everything God created is good. Amen. I want you to understand that the evil is not in God's creation. The evil is not in sexuality. The evil is not in food. Some of our precious girls wrestle with with a horrible disease called bulimia and anorexia nervosa. The roots of that kind of a problem grow out of an idea that somehow food is tainted, that it is evil, that it is bad. And that develops an idea that somehow there's something wrong with my body and my body isn't right and I can't eat so I need to get rid of this evil out of the inside of me. And then it can can even produce death. It can cause a precious girl, even some fellas, to just, just destroy themselves. Where does that come from? An idea that somehow this physical substance will be evil for me, will be bad for me. The Apostle Paul says, no, you've been set free. God's creation is good. It is to be received with thanksgiving. Sex is not an evil thing. God created sex. In marriage, it's a beautiful, holy thing to be freely enjoyed. That's why God has put some regulations around it. Because it is so good. It's so precious. It's so holy to him. Food is not to be rejected. You're not to have all kinds of food laws and and to be afraid of, of what you eat. You're to enjoy it. You're to use it for the glory of God. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that for God has created everything and it's good and nothing is to be rejected. Instead, we're to receive it with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. And so I want to encourage you in your life. You need to thank the Lord for the food that you have. You need to, of course, eat in a healthy way because that's part of enjoying God's goodness and his his creation. You also need to be thankful for the sexuality that he gives you, for the maleness and femaleness that he's given to you as men and women. And so I ask you the question, in light of what I've just taught you, do you think back in 1 Timothy 3 when the Apostle Paul said, a one woman kind of a man, that he was forbidding all spiritual leaders, all those that were going to be overseers in God's family from ever marrying? I think you can see, well, in Paul's thinking, that would be, that would be anathema. That would be very far away from what the Apostle Paul would say. Now, I want to say this for the singles. The Apostle Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7, that there's a special place for singleness. And I think it's easy for us as we talk about, about families, as we talk about uh, marriage, it's easy to forget those of you that are, that are single. And I want you to understand that the scripture teaches that you do have a special place. You do have a, have a set-apart place. You have a special ministry that you can carry out. 
The neat thing about the Apostle Paul is that he says that every one of us, in the condition where we find ourselves, can find meaning and blessing, and we can be used of God. So the Apostle Paul doesn't demean singleness, but he also doesn't demean marriage. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, in the chapter that he extols the single life, and he talks about the special opportunities it gives for serving the Lord, he also comes out with a verse like this. If you're burning, it's better to marry than to burn. If the Lord gives you a relationship and that relationship begins to blossom into romantic love and and you find that you're having real difficulty staying out of relationship with another and and you're having trouble fighting, not joining together physically, and the Apostle Paul says, with my blessing, get married. The answer for, for physical passion is marriage. So Apostle Paul is very honest and very straightforward. He's so different from religionists. He just talks to you right from his heart and exposes reality. So I think in light of what I've just said, that it would be very hard in my own viewpoint, you'll have to think about it yourself, but in light of 1 Timothy chapter 4, it would be very hard for me to hold that the one woman kind of a man was someone that was exclusively devoted to the church and a celibate. In other words, I don't think the Apostle Paul would ever teach that. Another view that developed is that it was a prohibition against polygamy. Now, that's a really good view to take because then you can just put it back in the first century and we don't have to worry about it too bad. In other words, polygamy is not a real pressing issue in the United States, although serial relationships are going from one to the next. But most of us realize that polygamy is not really that big a problem in the United States today, even out in Utah for the most part. But you know, I hate to tell you this, but in the first century, that polygamy among the Romans and Greeks was very uncommon. Very, very uncommon. And among the Jews, it was very uncommon. And so the idea that the Apostle Paul, when when he was talking to potential leaders, had to give some special prohibition against a life of polygamy, it would be something like, why would he even mention that? Because it's not a real pressing issue in the first century church. And so I hardly think that he's saying, well, this is a prohibition against someone having many wives and many husbands. In fact, the other side, to talk about the phrase in chapter 5, polyandry, having many husbands, was almost totally unknown. Women are smarter than that. You know, they know, man, it's hard enough to keep one man under control without trying to have several of them. And so the phrase would be meaningless in chapter 5 when it's used of the opposite sex. A third view developed, and that was that it was a prohibition against the remarriage of widowers. In other words, or widows. In other words, if you were in a relationship and you lost your spouse, then this phrase prohibited you, if you remarried, from becoming a spiritual leader. Once again, I want you to see how we're, how we're taking this phrase and developing the many different ways that you can approach it. Well, if that's true, then we'd have to look over to 1 Timothy 5. Then why did the Apostle Paul counsel the younger widows like this in verse 11? The Apostle Paul is saying that this means that a widow never remarries or a widower never remarries. Then why did Paul write like this? Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. As for the younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idols, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to say. The Apostle Paul is just dealing realistically. He's saying that if we take a young woman and who's lost her husband and we lock her into a life of celibacy, 
We lock her into a life where she's not ever to have another relationship. She's now going to be exclusively devoted to the service of God. What he's saying is that the, the normal run of things is that she's going to go out into life. And there's going to be great passions that develop. And she could easily fall in love. And then you're going to have a conflict between the promise that she and the vow that she made before God. And the tremendous movement of human sexuality and the need for human relationships. And so the Apostle Paul says, don't lock a younger woman woman into that kind of of a bind. Instead, what does he tell a younger widow to do? Look what he says in verse 14. So I counsel the younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. In fact, some have, in fact, have already turned away to follow Satan. And once again, I want you to see that Paul sees this great conflict. You see, when we lose someone in death, tremendous forces are at work. The loneliness that takes place. I'll never forget when my dad lost my mom. He lost my mom on New Year's Day Eve. They had just been out together. My mom had just been down visiting us here in Texas. And there was no warning or anything. They were just getting ready to go to another party. And my mom just said to my dad, you know, that's that something was wrong and she just slumped over in the seat. By the time he walked around the car and opened the door where she was sitting, she was gone. They went through all the procedure of running to the hospital, but my dad knew she was gone. For a week, my dad was totally incapacitated. Could hardly do anything. Only those of you that have experienced it know what it means to lose your life partner. And then my dad picked up the pieces like he does and just went right on. He was on Dr. Dobson's Focus on the Family about a year later. And Dr. Dobson got him to begin because he's so empathetic and so relational. And James began to talk to my dad about my mom and what it meant. And, and, he, and he, got my, he, he asked my dad, you know, what was it like you know, to lose your partner? My, my dad began to weep. And James began to weep. And they had a very touching mo- moment as my dad began to let out some of that grief that he, that he, that he held inside with his strength. A little bit after that, he went on a trip to Bermuda. And I remember, you know, before he went on that trip, I remember him visiting with us. And he would be running to this lady and calling this lady and taking this lady out to eat. And, man, have you ever had an adolescent father that's, that's near 70? And then I'm saying, my, Mary was ready to string him up by his toes. You know, what's the matter with this giant in the faith, this evangelist? He went to Bermuda, and on the bus, he met this girl named Joan. And suddenly, I start to get pictures of, of this woman. You ever get, you know, your dad is sending you pictures of another woman and it's not your mom. Well, I had enough trouble with that, but my sisters hit the fan. My sisters called me up even from from Brazil. They said, you are the son in the family, but you're also the pastor. Deal with your erring father. So I began to think, man, I need to do something about this. So I began to think through the scripture. And I think about Abraham and man, his family got upset about him marrying Keturah. And yet, the scripture, when I read the Genesis account, doesn't see anything wrong. When Sarah died, Abraham married, and it says the Lord even generated some more nations out of this guy that wasn't even going to have kids. The Lord is generating nation after nation in his old age. So I couldn't use that one. That wasn't going to work for dad. Then I open up to this passage. In fact, when I talk to my dad, this is the passage my dad talks to me about. And my dad's all excited. He said, you know, I've just been reading the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul says that we need to take care of these widowers. And I met a widow, this widow, I met a widow who lost her husband. And I need to take care of her. I need to follow what the Apostle Paul is saying. In fact, will you help, will you conduct the ceremony? Man alive, what a, what a challenge. I'll never forget going to Leavenworth, Kansas. And I'll never forget, you know, have, with another pastor, doing my dad's own 
marriage ceremony. I never had that class in seminary, you know, or, uh, or you know, carrying out the ceremony, the marriage vows of your, of your father. Now, that's a weird experience. But you know what? As contrary to my sisters, it was a very hard change. It was very hard. But you know what? There's nothing in the scripture that tells a widow or a widower to not get married again. In fact, the Lord's blessing is upon it. The Lord says that until death do us part. And none of you until you've been there can know. In fact, my brother Don and I were up in Michigan in Grand Rapids. I spoke at a church up there. And after the service, my brother played. And Don and I were together with several of their elderly couples, several of their leaders, great men and women that had walked many years with the Lord. Never forget a, a dear old man in his late 70s came up to Don and I and he, he was listening to us talk about the struggle we were having with this new woman in my dad's life. And I'll never forget this elderly man saying, saying, listen, boys, you have never been there. You've never been 70. You've never lost your life partner. He said, I have. And he said, you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice that the Lord has given your dad someone again. You know, he was right. I just got back from Florida, like I shared with you when we talked. My dad was swimming with me in the Gulf of Mexico. My dad, when he lost my mom, was ready to die. Life had ended. Joan turned on the lights again. Joan gave him a renewal, gave him new strength. I'll never forget that old man from Grand Rapids told me, before my dad even married Joan, he said, Joan will give you your dad for many, many more years. Don't fight. Don't resist. And so I hardly think in light of what I'm talking about today, in light of the clear teaching of Scripture and, this, and a principle that have been brought out in my own life, lived out in my own family life, I really doubt the Apostle Paul would say that now my dad can't be a spiritual leader because he's no longer a one-woman man because he's been married again. See, I really doubt that's what the phrase means. So I really don't believe that it's a prohibition of, of the remarriage of widows or widowers. I don't think that it's a... It's a prohibition against uh, polyandry or polygamy. I don't think that it, it is the uh, exclusion. It's, it's a celibate kind of a life. Well, there's another view that's become very, very strong in many evangelical churches. And that is that this phrase forever prohibits someone that's been divorced from being a spiritual leader. You see, a lot of people hold that what this phrase means, that this is a one-woman man. It means that if, if this man has ever been divorced... And now he's remarried, that he's forever relegated to not being able to be a spiritual leader. On the other hand, for a woman, a woman that's gone through a divorce, it means she's forever tainted. And many churches will hold it. And I want you to understand, I want you to say that as I talk about this, that I do it with gentleness. And I know that there can be controversy, but I want you to listen to me. Let me first of all share the case that they would hold in that. They would hold... Basically, that number one, even if this phrase doesn't mean a one-woman man, it doesn't forever, in other words, in, like I've talked about widows and widowers, they're married to another man or another woman. So if it doesn't literally mean that, the phrase that would get a divorced person is that they could never be said to be above reproach. They could never be said to be, have a good reputation with unbelievers. In other words, this view holds that when you make that error, that it forever means that you are labeled. Now, some of you I know have that kind of a label on your heart. And I've seen this in being in the ministry now for 22 years. It's like you got a big D written on you. And you can't ever get it off. And when I talk like that, in fact, you're even afraid to listen. 
Because you feel like you're second rate. It's kind of like being a Jew in, in, in Nazi Germany where you feel like you're wearing your big yellow star and your big special clothing. And I've seen that, that kind of thinking over the years stall out many brothers and sisters. You feel like you're crippled in your walk with Christ. You feel like you're never going to get over your limp. You feel like you can never go on. Now I want to share with you why I believe that, that that's not at all what Paul has in mind. You see, first of all, I want to teach you, I want to remind you of some things. I'm not going to go into a full discourse about divorce. I've taught you other times. But I want to remind you about what I believe the Scripture is teaching about divorce in and then apply it to this context. First of all, I want you to know that the heart of God, God's heart, God's ideal, the way God created things is always one man and one woman for life. As you're raising your children up, you need to train them up to be praying and asking the Lord to lead them to that one partner. You need to be giving them the character inside that can help them to find and and listen to their Heavenly Father to help them to know that one partner that they should join with. God's ideal in the Garden of Eden was not Adam and Eve and Eva and Janet and Mary and Esther. God said he took out of Adam's side and he generated Eve, Isha. He was called Ish, the man. The woman was taken from his side, Isha, the feminine form of man. And they were meant to be companions that walked together through life, which is why the Lord, in a beautiful artistic way, took the woman from Adam's side. And God's heart is always everywhere, all the way through the word of God. God's heart is one man and one woman for life. Why does God emphasize that? Because that is where there's going to be joy. That's where there's going to be happiness. That's where there's going to be the fullest development that you can have as far as a marriage is concerned. It's God's heart, and he never turns away from that. But you know what? We're sinful. We're human beings. You see, we live in a world where bombs go off, and bombs can go off in families. And you know what I'm so thankful for is that the Lord God of heaven doesn't sit in heaven in his holiness and in his absolute otherness from us, which he is. God is totally just. He's totally holy. But I've got news for you. He doesn't stay detached from the reality of human existence. And that's why in Deuteronomy 24, the living God said to Moses, give them these instructions. Divorce is taking place. Give them these helpful principles that will help to curb some of the evil effects that come from divorce. And then you have those Jewish laws that say that a, a, a man can't pass a woman right back and forth. They can't treat her like chattel. They can't treat her like property. And in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came before the Lord and said, let's talk about Deuteronomy 24. You know, is, is, are there grounds for divorce? In, in Matthew chapter 19, it, he, the Lord is asked, are there grounds for divorce? And Jesus said, no, from the beginning, from the beginning, God created a male and female. And he went back to the ideal. And then they say, well, this, then the Pharisees say, well, why did, why did Moses give us the law in Deuteronomy 24? Why did Moses say it was all right if we gave them a, the proper certificate? And the Lord Jesus said this, because of the hardness of your heart. And what he was saying there is that, is that God enters in and recognizes that hearts can be hard. And then Jesus said this, but I tell you that if someone divorces and if they remarry, they are committing adultery. If a man does that, he's committing adultery. If a woman does that, they're committing adultery. But then he adds this. It's a very important phrase. He adds it in both Matthew 5 and he adds it in Matthew 19. In Mark and Luke, he just states the ideal because that's the heart of God. No exceptions. 
But you, if you're going to believe in the inspiration of Scripture, you need to read all of it. And Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 add this little phrase, except for immorality. And it's a word, porneia, that means the most general word that you can use for sexual immorality. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. He's saying that immorality can dissolve a marriage. It can blast a marriage. It can explode it. There can be innocent victims in that immorality. I remember years ago, there was a fellow that graduated through seminary, and the last thing in the world he ever wanted to do was be divorced. But it happened. Right near the time of his graduation, his wife came to him and said, I'm out of here. I've been working, I'm earning a great salary, I'm gone. Now, my friend didn't believe in divorce. My friend believed that there was absolutely no divorce, that it could never take place, but it did. He felt like his life had ended. And that's why the Lord added, except for immorality, because he's saying that sometimes human life and human sin and human rebellion can blow things to smithereens. And it can dissolve a marriage. And there can be innocent parties that, that are caught in the vortex of all that happens. Just like when the bomb blast went off in Oklahoma. Innocent people get hurt and wounded. And that's why the Lord in his pastoral care said to, my, to, said to his sheep, he said, immorality can dissolve a marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul does exactly the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if you're married as a believer, he says, don't get divorced. He says, if you're married and, you, and, you're, and, you're, and you're married to a believer, he says, don't separate. And then right after this, he says, but if you do, but if you do, remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your party. You know what Paul is saying? He's talking about the struggle of marriages. I talked to you earlier in our talk today. There's struggle in marriage. I want all of you to realize that. You see, a lot of you are under the mistaken notion that you go to the, the marriage vow and you say your vows in front of a church and you ride off into the sunset and you live happily ever after. The fight has just begun when you walk out the aisle. It's going to take you about two months to wake up and realize that you're in a tremendous struggle. You know why? Because you just, cre- you just united in the closest human possible relationship two ugly, dirty, rotten sinners that are selfish and prideful and look out only for themselves. And it's only by the grace of God and honesty and openness and, and daily listening to the Lord Jesus change them that they can slowly but surely learn to work out their marriage. That's really, really important. What the Apostle Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 7 is sometimes the heat can get so strong, sometimes the heat can get so intense that you need to get out. And what he's saying is if you do that, give the Spirit time. Give the Holy Spirit time for reconciliation. He also recognizes that some of you can walk right out. And I want to warn every one of you, if you walk out and you have no desire for reconciliation and you say, no, I'm going to find happiness out there, you can walk out into what you think is light, into what you think is the ultimate meaning in life, and you will find out that you walked out into real deception and real death. And some of you that have been wounded that way, some of you that have been hurt that way, it's easy for Satan to bring a thought as, well, man, everything's going great, man, the other per- everything's going fine. Don't think that. Because unless those people come to a place of reconciliation, unless those people come to the place of healing, unless they come to the place of honesty and openness and breaking before God, they have walked away from true love and real goodness and real peace. And in the end, the Lord really is good. And being away from him 
is not good. Very important to understand that. So the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying if you're a believer and you leave a partner, that it's real important for you to allow the Holy Spirit to work in their life so that eventually you can have healing. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talked about another case. He talked about a believer married to an unbeliever, and he says this. If a believer is married to an unbeliever, there can be a tremendous division that takes place in a family. He's saying that that spiritual commitment to Jesus can just wipe out your relationship. Jesus told in the, in, the, in, in the gospel, he says, I have not come to bring peace. In fact, I've come to bring a sword. I will divide fathers from mothers and fathers and mothers from children and, and husbands from wives. He's saying that I am the ultimate ground of truth. You know what? If you really commit your life to Jesus, rather than healing your family, it can produce the destruction of your family if other people choose not to go with you. Now, that's not the Lord's heart. The Lord wants all of them to come to himself, but if they harden themselves... They can walk away and it can divide your family. And there can be divorces that take place because of that. Because one partner, an unbeliever, chooses, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm leaving. And we need to be very careful to not label that individual within any church family as being second rate or somehow a a sinful child or a sinful or an undeserving partner in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul, that's why the Apostle Paul says, as a believer, try to hold it together. Because your goal is to win them to Christ. But if they leave, let them leave. Because the Lord has called us to peace. What I want you to feel a little bit, I want you to feel the Apostle Paul's pastoral care. You see, when you're at seminary, seminary professors can look at the language and they come up with very rigid rules about what happens and doesn't happen. In fact, some of my friends that have taken the most rigid rules about divorce, that it should not ever happen and it could never happen, it happens. Some of it has happened to them. And some of them have had a wrestle with the ambiguity and the struggle of human existence. And oh, I'm so thankful that the Lord God of heaven has chosen to reveal himself to us. And he wrestles with these kind of problems. And so when I ask the question, does a one woman kind of a man or a one man kind of a woman mean that you can never, if you have gone through the brokenness of a divorce, does that mean that you can never become a spiritual leader? Does that mean you can never have your reputation rebuilt? Does that mean that you're going to carry on this big D or this big I of immorality for the rest of your existence, for the rest of your life? We'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because the Apostle Paul talked to a group of believers just like yourselves that had struggled with sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse uh, 9, it says this. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And boy, do we need to hear these words today. Don't be deceived. You're going to have all kinds of religious teachers going to tell you that you can do whatever you want to morally and everything will be fine. But the Apostle Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong. He's saying that those that give in to the passions of evil within, whether it be homosexual perversion, whether it be heterosexual perversion, whether it be alcoholism, whether it be greed and materialism. And Paul is saying that this evil is within us. And if we give vent to that, then we're becoming part of the kingdom of darkness. But I want you to notice what else he says. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. But you are washed You are set apart, you are sanctified, you are declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
What's the Apostle Paul saying? You know what he's saying? He's saying that some of you might have had a past that was filled with immorality. Some of you might have had a past that was filled with... You might not have even known what the standards of God were except in the deep recesses of your conscience because nobody really taught you from the scripture. Some of you were in and out of three and four marriages before you even came to know Jesus for real. Does that mean that you're forever a second-rate person? No. The Apostle Paul says that Christ, when he comes into your life, he says, past tense, such were some of you. Such were some of you. But now you've been washed. Now you've been justified. What does that mean? It says, now you've been forgiven. You know what some of you need to hear? You need to hear, you are forgiven. Your Heavenly Father never brings up the past. He never says, well, you're my divorced kid. He never says, well, you're my immoral kid. Remember that mess up you made back in high school? He's never condoning. He's never condoning your evil. In fact, he takes your evil so seriously that that's why he sent his son into the world to die for you. It took the blood of Jesus to wash us, to give us a bath. But he has given us a bath. When you come to him and you break and you admit your evil and you admit your sin, then you're clean, you're clean, you're clean. And what that means is what I believe is that means that you're not a second-rate person. I think it means that you can go on and become a leader. And I think what the Apostle Paul means, the phrase is literally this. You are a one-woman man. The Apostle Paul is much more concerned not about your past. He's concerned about your present right now. He began this passage by saying, now spiritual leaders must be present tense. In fact, an interesting thing about this, this list, I've never heard of any church family that said, if you've ever had a bad temper, if you have ever been in a ball game where you looked at a guard who just flattened you after you shot your jump shot and you cussed him out and said, I could kill you, I've never met a church yet that excluded leadership on that principle. And I hate to say it, but I've done that a couple times in games. Especially when I was in high school playing football, when my temper was vicious. But my coaches taught me we played much better when we got absolutely furious. We wanted to kill somebody. I've never met a church yet that said, well, Dave, you can't be a spiritual leader. Look what's in your past. Man, no one would be a leader at that rate. You see why it's so important to look at the present? In other words, the, the issue is, Dave, has there been growth in your life? Has there been a change in your life? Have we seen evidence that the Spirit of God is controlling your temper? Have we seen that you don't tear someone's head off when you're playing a game and, and lose it completely? You see, the issue is, has there been evidence of the work of grace? And that's always an ongoing thing, which gives us a, an understanding and a graciousness. You know what the issue is, as I close? You know what the big issue for every one of you today is? Are you today? See, not what your past is, but are you today a one-woman man? Are you today a one-man woman? You know, that's a powerful phrase. And it's a very, very important phrase. I was up in Grand Rapids speaking to it at a children's Bible hour banquet. When you speak like that on the road, I fly up to Grand Rapids and I'm sitting in a motel all by myself. No one even knows who I am in that hotel. After I speak in the banquet, they say goodbye to me and I walk upstairs. No one knows what I do in that room. So I flip on the TV set. That's when I decide, am I a one-woman man? You see, if I let my eyes watch things that make me covet somebody else, then I'm not a one-woman man. And, and you know what? It hurts Mary. Even though I'm millions of miles away from her, and even though she might ever know, I begin to give part of myself to people that don't belong to me. 
And just like bomb blasts, they don't just go off. It is a whole sequence of events that leads up to that kind of treachery. And that's why the Lord Jesus was very strong about that kind of thing. You know what Jesus Christ said? He said, if if your eyes offend you, cut them out. If your right eye offends you, cut it out. He wasn't saying to literally cut out your eyes. He says, I want you to know something. I want you to know something. Man, if you wrestle with immorality, deal with it. Ruthlessly deal with it. Have accountability. And you know what helps me, man? All, as I've been preparing to get ready for you, the Lord comes to my mind and says, are you a one-woman man right now, Dave? Teenagers go to the mall. What do teenagers go to the mall for? Very few teenagers say, well, Dave, I'm going to go to the mall because it's the weekend and I want to find the one babe that God has for me. I want to find the one woman that will be the one gift that God wants to give to me. No. They don't go to look for one. They go to look at many. And you older codgers laugh at that. Don't you tell me that. Some of you older codgers do the same thing. You go to the mall for exactly the same, same reason, to go babe watching. In our society, the girls are falling into the same kind of a pattern. I want you to think how in our natural man, we automatically go after the many. Somehow we think that we have the many. You see, when you guys go to the movies and you look at some beautiful actress, when you guys, girls go to the movies and look at some handsome actor, and you say, man, it's just taking place in my thought life. It's just a thought thing. Your actions begin right there in your thought life. And that's where you decide, are you a one-woman man, a one-man woman? Which really means, will I take what God wants from me? You see, I knew when I started dating Mary, it was almost like the Lord talked to me deep in my soul and says, this is the one. This is the one that I have for you. This is the one that I know is going to grow and mature and develop. And I covet her, and she is so precious. There's no one else that could fit into my life the way Mary does. There's no one else that could keep me organized and keep me on track and keep me from floating off into some theological stratosphere somewhere. But you know what? Mary's life is very important because I need to be exclusively devoted to her. But you know what? There's a craziness inside of me that might not be exclusively devoted to her. You know what brings me home? When I'm tempted, when those thoughts come to my mind, I, I, I think about Mary. I focus on Mary. I focus on the gift that Mary is to me. Now, I want to ask you a question. As I speak like that, ladies, do you like what I just said, ladies? Does that touch your heart a little bit? Doesn't that do something? Men, doesn't that, doesn't that feel way deep inside? I talk about my exclusive devotion to Mary. Doesn't that feel like, hey, that's right? Suppose they talk like this. Well, you know, Mary, you know, man, we've been married 25 years, and, you know, I went on a trip, and I went swimming to Clearwater, Florida, and there were, man, I, I met, there's a girl 28 years of, all, years of age, and she hasn't had four kids. Man, she, she looks great in a, in a certain bathing suit. Man, it's really fantastic. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to covet her a little bit. How do you feel about that? Well, you ladies should be ready to kill me and stone me because that's the false dichotomy that our culture has right now. So evil. You know, you see how you intuitively, intuitively know what is right? You intuitively know what is wrong. What the phrase is asking, I want all of you to realize, I don't believe that there's a person, you're from all different backgrounds. Some of you did all kinds of things before you were saved. I know there's some teenagers that have already blown it sexually. And Satan's tempting you to say, man, just forget it. You know, you're not going to ever be pure. You know, you're not going to ever, you know, you've already blown God's ideal. Just live in Satan's kingdom. And God is coming today and he's saying that Jesus Christ died on Calvary for every one of us so that we could be clean again. 
And when we ask for forgiveness, when we come to him, Jesus comes into our life and he makes us brand new. And he covers up that past with his love and with his grace. You know what he says? He says that you can become a spiritual leader. You can become an example. You know what? Reputations can be rebuilt. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as I speak like this, it's so easy for Satan to to just put a bundle of guilt upon some of my brothers and sisters here. Some of them look back over their lives and they've had twists and turns that have come because they really didn't know your instructions. And some of them even knew your instructions, but they turned away from you and made some really bad choices. And it's easy for them to feel like they're labeled damaged goods in the body of Christ never to be used in influential positions again. Lord, today we've tried to have a balance with how seriously that you take evil. There's one group of Christians in our society that take evil for granted and they just think it's a laughing matter and it's no big deal for marriage relationships to blow apart and for immorality to take place. They have a very flippant view towards evil. And Lord, we pray that you would help our conversation today from your word to not fuel any of that diabolical, cunning, deceitful thinking. But Lord, there's another one of your children that is one of your children that has broken before you. They have made serious mistakes. They have not kept the heart of your will. And truly, every one of us mentally have not consistently maintained the purity in our thought life that you say we need to maintain. And yet, Lord, we have confessed it to you. We have openly come to your son and we've asked him to forgive us. And you have promised us that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, your son, can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, I just want to pray that some of my fellow brothers and sisters that are in this condition, they've asked you to forgive them. And yet they still feel like they're excluded. They feel like they can never quite be the man or woman of God that you wanted them to be because they have sinned. Lord, I would pray that you would take that monkey of guilt off their back. That monkey of false guilt that is stalling them out towards seizing the opportunities that are, that are all around them to be spiritual examples. Oh, Lord Jesus, I would just pray that you'd use today's message to, to, to renew them and to cause everyone, young and old alike, to know that with the Spirit of God's help and the power of the resurrection working within us, that we can become one woman men and one man women. Only your Spirit can get across the heart, the spirit of what I've said today. Lord, I know that we can manipulate the language and we can argue the interpretation of Scripture, but Lord, only your Spirit can help us to understand your heart of grace. Your heart of holiness, yes, but also your heart of grace and mercy and forgiveness and new life and redemption. This week, I pray that your Holy Spirit, when their thoughts are tempted, when their eyes are tempted to stray, when their hands are tempted to touch things that they should not touch, when their bodies are tempted to unite in ways that they are not meant to unite because they're not doing it with the person that you've given them. 
I'd ask you, Lord Jesus, that they'll have this phrase, like a big red light, going off in their mind. One woman man, one man woman. That's where God's heart is. That's where happiness will ultimately lie. That's what I want to be. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.